All right, well, I hope you're uh, ready. We're going to do some work actually now because we're going to be looking at the Old Testament together today. And I don't know how you feel when I say uh, Old Testament. Uh, some people, they, they love it, and uh, some people not so much. But this is a series I started a little while back, which I'm hoping is a short little introduction to the Old Testament. And uh, you're going to need your Bibles out for this one, uh, for sure, because this whole series I'm looking at a lot of Scripture, and that's because I really want to give you a, a big picture of the Bible, basically uh, what you would call a biblical theology, or at least a the biblical theology of the Old Testament. And uh, specifically, we're just trying to understand how the Old Testament works, what is going on. And we're doing that for a few reasons. And uh, one of the reasons we're doing that, of course, is because it's a part of the Bible, the Old Testament, and we believe the Bible is God's word. And that means whether it's easy for us to understand or hard for us to understand, it's important for us to understand. It's a part of the Bible, and it's a big part of the Bible. The Bible has the Old Testament and the New Testament, and for people who like numbers, the Old Testament is 77% of our Bible. There are around 611,000 words in the Bible, the original languages. It took me a long time to count those this week. Uh, no, actually, that's Google that helped me there. But there are 470,000 of those words or so in the Old Testament. A Bible I was looking at the other day is 1,242 pages, and the Old Testament is 953 of those pages. If you just take Moses, Ezra, and Nehemiah by themselves, they wrote 33% of the entire Bible. So it's a really big part of our Bible, the Old Testament. And for a lot of us, it's a confusing part of our Bible as well. Sometimes the Old Testament even feels a little strange for us. And you know, some of that's our culture, honestly. I've read uh, sometimes where unbelievers are kind of making fun of the Old Testament. And you know, I think there's a little bit of chronological snobbery or cultural snobbery going on. Like, look at us, we're so sophisticated. Because there are lots of places in the world, even right now, where the Old Testament doesn't seem as strange to them. In fact, they would think we're strange for what we think is strange in the Old Testament. But growing up where we grew up, sometimes it does feel strange to us. And even as Christians, maybe some of us are a little bit embarrassed or at least confused by the Old Testament. In fact, I heard someone describe the attitude that people have towards the Old Testament uh, as being like the attitude uh, someone might have towards a crazy uncle. So uh, you love him because he's your uncle, uh, but he's the guy who wears wild, he has wild hair, wears weird clothes, speaks a little too loudly, is always laughing at his own jokes, and you kind of feel funny, strange, being around him. He can be normal, and you have a good conversation with him sometimes, but other times he's talking about, like, conspiracies and UFOs, and you don't understand what he's going on about. And that's how some people feel about the Old Testament. They know they need to love it because it's in the Bible, and there are parts of it that they like, like Psalms and, and Proverbs, but there are also lots of other parts that they don't understand, and so they try to stay away from it or uh, just don't listen to it, which ends up being a problem, like a real problem. 
that's a problem if we don't understand the Old Testament, or at least the basic idea of the Old Testament, if you're a Christian. For one thing, because it's like a foundation, or it's like uh, grades kindergarten through 11. Obviously, it's going to be hard to start school in grade 12 if you skipped grades kindergarten through 11 and just tried to do your senior year. The Old Testament helps us understand the major themes we study in the New Testament, like man's sinfulness, where our problems came from, what sin even is, judgment, salvation, the sovereignty of God, and ultimately Jesus. One of the primary purposes the Old Testament was written is to help us understand Jesus. In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to a group of people who are rejecting him, and he's saying, it doesn't make sense that you're rejecting me because the scriptures were written that you might know me. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And, and later he says, you know what? When you stand before God as judge, it's not going to be me that accuses you. It's going to be Moses because Moses wrote of me. Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Moses wrote of me. In fact, you, you start making a list of things that you wouldn't understand about Jesus apart from the Old Testament. Who announces his birth? You wouldn't understand angels or Gabriel, how he's conceived, his whole genealogy. Why is it, why is it there? What are these names about? Where he, he's born, the, the title that he's given, the titles, like John going around, him, uh, going around calling him the Lamb of God, his roles even, priest, mediator, Messiah. I mean, you start making a list of things that you wouldn't understand about Jesus, and you realize that it would be hard to understand almost anything about Jesus without the Old Testament. Which is why we've taken a couple weeks to go back and try to understand what the Old Testament's all about. My original plan was to be looking at some pictures of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke. I thought after talking about prayer, I should just start my time here at CBC focusing on the person of Jesus. And yet as I was preparing, I realized that most of the pictures of Jesus in Luke are pretty hard to understand without understanding the Old Testament. It's like trying to read the last chapter of the Lord of the Rings without having read the whole series. And even Luke as a whole was written to give certainty, but certainty about what? Certainty that Jesus was who the Old Testament said he was. And so before we get to Jesus in Luke, we need to try to understand a little of what's going on in the Old Testament. And we started, you remember, by saying that to understand the Old Testament, you need to know what it is, what kind of book it is. And we said that the Old Testament is telling a story. Now, uh, scholars, of course, are funny, and uh, so many scholars, they have to come up with something new or debate, but they'll say uh, it, it's, it can't be a story. Many scholars will say it is a story. Other scholars will say it can't be a story because there are too, too many different kinds of materials. So like Proverbs, for example. How is Proverbs telling a story exactly? But when we say the Old Testament is a story, we're not saying there's not a lot going on in it. Obviously, there's a lot of different material. There is law, there are Proverbs, there is poetry, you name it. But it, instead, we're saying if you step back 
it's obvious that it has a basic plot, the Old Testament. And so all those different individual things we see in the Old Testament are being brought together as part of something bigger to help us understand the story. And two illustrations might help. It's like a mosaic. You know, a mosaic has all those little pictures that come together to make one big picture. And so, of course, you never say you really understand a mosaic if you can explain the little picture without getting the big picture. Or it's like a museum. I used to think of museums almost as like a huge garage where you just dump old stuff. But that's not really what's going on in a good museum. A museum is there to tell a story. And so a museum has a curator, and he has a story he wants to tell. And so he picks objects, and he puts them together in a certain way to tell a story. In fact, sometimes scholars will say that museums are giving you fake news. They're telling you a, a story that's not always totally accurate. But museums are bringing together all kinds of materials to tell you a story, which is kind of like what God's done in the Old Testament. He's brought together all kinds of different materials to communicate a message. And so we've been spending some time looking at key concepts to help us understand what that story is all about. It's kind of like if you do a puzzle before you look at, the, uh, do try to do the puzzle, you look at the picture on the front of the box. And the first concept to help us get the picture is the idea of the kingdom of God. If the Old Testament is a story, is there a way to summarize what the story is about? And there are lots of different ideas that people have. Promise, they'll say, or covenant, or salvation, but we picked this word kingdom, and we picked it because when Jesus talked about the Old Testament, this was one of his favorite things to talk about. And when we open up our Bible, that's reaffirmed on the very first pages, Genesis chapter one and two, because when you open up your Bible, you find it opens with a picture of the kingdom of God. Before anything bad enters into this world, you get a glimpse of the world as it should be, and it is good, very good. And we looked at these passages, Genesis 1 and 2, and we saw God's good plan involved perfect people in a perfect place experiencing his perfect presence. And even then, more specifically, we saw that God chose to rule this world through a chosen human representative. That's really important. Let me just quote because this is so essential to understand what's going on in the Bible and even just what's going on in the planet. We, we look back at God's blueprint and we see God created a spectacular universe full of wonder and mystery, yet this new world needed a ruler. Yes, God was king and could directly rule over this new kingdom himself, but this was not his plan. So he created man, just as an ancient king would place an image of himself in an area of his realm to show his sovereignty. God makes man in his image to represent him in this newly created world. Yet in this case, these representations of God are not lifeless statues, but living, breathing human beings. While God is king, he created man as king, vice regent, and mediator over creation. And I, and I love this stuff, so I could give you quotes all day, but one more. God is the great king who rules over the universe, 
but he's created humanity to rule as vice regents, many kings and queens who rule under his authority. God exercises his rule over creation through humanity as they exercise dominion over all God has made. God's purpose for humanity is to reflect his glorious beauty by filling the earth and ruling over creation as his representatives. And so that's the plan. It's a picture of the world as it should be. And yet, of course, we know that after creating and designing this good world and making a special place to meet with man, God gave him a test, putting man in the garden to watch over it and protect it. That is uh, Genesis 2.15. And actually, if you do a deep dive into the languages, you find the same words that are used to describe man's task in Genesis 2.15, work and keep, those very words are translated throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, serve and guard, to describe the priest's role in the tabernacle. And the idea seems to be that the Garden of Eden was like the first temple which is why you see in God's design of the tabernacle and in the design of later temples, there are all these Garden of Eden-like images. It was the place on earth to meet with God and man's job was to protect it. And God gave man one law, one specific command at the beginning, which was basically designed to evaluate, will you trust me? that I know what's best and rule over this world on my behalf, relying on what I say is good. And of course, man said, no, actually, I, I won't trust you. And instead of submitting himself to God's authority, aligned himself with Satan. And the result is that he brought a curse into this world. And from that point on, there were problems. You ever wonder about the seriousness of sin? Think about the impact of man's rebellion. It brought problems into our relationship with one another. It brought problems into the fabric of the world itself. Creation groans now. It brought problems into our relationship with God. It brought problems into our relationship with pretty much everything. And so it's like as we turn from Genesis 1 and 2 to chapter 3, that this picture of the kingdom that we got on the first pages has been shattered into a million little pieces. As Adam listened and submitted himself to Satan's advice, instead of ruling over that serpent, he allowed the serpent to rule over him. And he was stripped of his ability to rule this world properly as God's representative and to bring the world into submission the way God designed. And in a sense, he handed over his privileged position of authority to Satan, who's now exercising a kind of rule in this world that he clearly shouldn't. I think that's why he's called the God of this world in the New Testament. Which caused us, though, you remember to ask a question. And I think the Old Testament is wanting you to ask a question. It's going to be hard to understand all the stories that you read in the Old Testament unless you're asking this question. And that is whether or not man's rebellion at the beginning meant that God was finished with his plan to rule over this world through a chosen human representative with his plan to establish his kingdom on earth. And the answer we find very quickly is that most definitely he's not. That's part of why we have such a long Bible. It doesn't end at Genesis 4. He will rule this world through a chosen human 
representative. And there are lots of places in the Bible that make that clear, but one place is the great promise that we find almost right away. If you're trying to sort of structure the way the Old Testament tells its story, there's a plan, Genesis 1 and 2, and there's a problem, Genesis 3, and then there's a promise in Genesis 3.15. And this promise is foundational. We keep coming back to it because it's key to everything else. God declares essentially that one of Eve's descendants is going to defeat Satan once and for all. And the picture he gives is that of a man stepping on the head of a serpent, crushing the head of the serpent as the serpent bites its heel. So the picture is of a great victory through suffering. And I suppose because Satan tried to use man to overthrow God's plan, it's not surprising we find God promising to use man to conquer Satan. But the question, of course, is how? How? Because it's obvious very quickly that man is really broken. And the fact is, man is committed to pursuing the opposite of God's kingdom plan. Man is committed to an anti-kingdom agenda. In other words, as someone has put it, man is committed to establishing his own kingdom contrary to the one of God's design. And in the very first few chapters of the Bible, it gets so bad that God starts the, Bible, uh, starts the world all over again with the most righteous man on the planet, Noah. And yet even after starting all over again with Noah, it's not long until things get so bad again that the whole world has gathered together, committed to building a city, essentially dedicating themselves to saying one thing, God, we don't want you to be our king. And that, of course, is the Tower of Babel, where all humanity gathers to say the same thing Adam did. We want to be God. We want to define good and evil for ourselves. And looking at man's rebellion there, you might wonder whether God is going to continue to show mercy and if he's going to show mercy and establish his kingdom the way we hope, you're definitely wondering, how can he do that? And one way the Old Testament answers how God is going to establish his kingdom is through a series of things we call covenants. And this is key concept number two. The Old Testament is telling a story about this kingdom, and it tells the story of how God is establishing that kingdom through something we call covenants. If you think of how you tell a story, there's usually some structure to how you tell it. There's a way that you put events together to move things forward. And the structure the Old Testament uses is something we call covenants. And covenants are basically like a promise, but more intense. You could maybe say contract, but even that word falls short. Technically, you could say it's a formal agreement between two parties but that sounds so impersonal, and uh, this is anything but. A good picture of a covenant today is a marriage. A marriage is a covenant. It's like a, a serious oath that brings two people who aren't technically related together and makes them family. And in the Bible, God is making a serious oath to do something for us. In fact, one way someone's described these covenants is as God's own job description. I like that. God is giving us his job description. And there are about five of these really important covenants. There are 
more, but five of these really important covenants in the Old Testament. And these covenants are like pictures of exactly how God is going to fix what man has broken. That's how I want you to think of them. As the Bible's telling the story of the kingdom, which we saw pictured in the garden, it's been broken by the fall. And throughout the Bible, God gives us a series of pictures in which he is slowly but surely helping us understand better how he's going to keep the promise he made to defeat Satan and make this whole world into what he originally designed. In other words, if you just fast forward to the end of the story and you look at Satan being defeated and man serving as God's representative and ruling the world and bringing it into submission and enjoying perfect fellowship with God, you're like, how is that going to happen with all the problems with us? And in the Old Testament, one way God answers is slowly but surely through these covenants where it's almost like God is pulling pictures out of his pocket to show you how. And with each picture, he's making it more and more clear. And the first picture we saw a couple weeks ago was the commitment he made to Noah and actually the entire world. This is Genesis 6 through 9. And that commitment is striking because it's not how it had to be. Because here God makes this world and the whole world basically turns against him. And he could have said it was finished. It belonged to him. He had every right. But instead, he basically starts over again with Noah. And when he starts over again, he promises that he is not going to wipe the planet out until he fixes what man had, had broken. That's the Noahic covenant. This is a promise to preserve the world. God assures us in the Noahic covenant, he is going to achieve the promised victory on earth as it exists right now. And we kind of rely on the Noahic covenant every morning that we get up. <laughs> Because the Noahic covenant gives us confidence the world's still going to be here tomorrow until God fixes what man has broken. And we need that promise because man is really, really wicked. Which again, we saw in how after God started everything over with Noah, man quickly did pretty much the same thing he did at the beginning. Genesis 9 to 11 is pretty much a repeat of Genesis 3. And yet the good news is God responds to man's rebellion in Genesis 11 pretty much the same way he responded to Adam's in Genesis 3, by judging. And yet as he's judging, he's making another promise. In other words, he pulls out another picture to make his great rescue plan more clear. And the next covenant or commitment that God makes is to an old man named Abraham in Genesis 12, which we call the Abrahamic covenant. So we know Satan's going to be defeated. And we know there's going to be a descendant of Eve who comes and does what Adam should have done. And even though man is so wicked, we know that God is not going to give up on his plan because of what happened in Genesis 9. And we get a clearer idea of how he's going to accomplish this because of Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Abrahamic covenant gives us a clearer picture of God's strategy for saving people and restoring all things. And this is key, so catch this. Genesis 1 to 11 is about the world. It is God's plan for the world. And it shows the problems in the world. And Genesis 12 is about God's solution to these problems. Or I guess another way to say it a little more specific, 
There's a curse in Genesis 3. There are all these curses that man's sin has brought into the world. And Genesis 12 is about how God is going to reverse those curses. So here's a specific quote, James Hamilton. If you look at the content of the blessings in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, you'll see it matches with the content of the curses in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. In other words, problem, Genesis 3, Proof, man can't fix that problem, Genesis 4 to 11, and God's solution, Genesis 12. And if you look at the promise God makes Abram, you see it has to do with people, place, and presence. That is kind of a simple way of summarizing it, which means it's about how God is going to reestablish his kingdom. And, And we might say, or we saw actually, that God's plan focuses on Abram having children, offspring, seed, and those children becoming a nation and being given land from which they will ultimately defeat their enemies. And it's from those offspring, that offspring, that seed of Abram, that God says he will accomplish his purpose of bringing blessing to the world. In you, Genesis 12, verse 3, God says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I I just love I hope you get that. I love how God tells this story because as he talks about Abram's seed, it's a little ambiguous actually. Seed can be singular, seed can be plural. And, and, and so there's definitely a singular seed in, in Genesis. There's a messianic expectation, a deliverer. But there's also a lot of emphasis, probably in Genesis, more emphasis on the plural seed of Abram, Israel. And that's so important as well, because a whole lot of the rest of the Old Testament is going to be about that seed, actually, the plural seed. And and this is going to be the third key concept for understanding the Old Testament. First, kingdom. Second, covenant. Now, third, Israel. And and I know maybe I lost you at, at Israel, because sometimes all this talk about the nation of Israel seems so distant and confusing, and honestly, for for some of us, even a little boring. But you need to remember the reason for the nation of Israel and the reason for the promise of land to Israel and the reason for all that God's doing in Israel is bigger than the nation of Israel. It's connected to the promise. It has to do with God's plan of defeating Satan and reclaiming human dominion over the world. So if you're interested in how God is going to fix all the problems of the world, you should be a little interested in what God has to say about Israel. And again, that's why Genesis 12 and the promise about Israel comes after Genesis 1 to 11, which is all about the world. Because God is saying through Abram's offspring, he's going to reverse the curse. Bless, bless, bless. And the blessing he's talking about with Abraham goes all the way back to the beginning. We're talking Garden of Eden type stuff, but better, the kingdom of God. We're talking about God ruling this earth through a chosen human representative and making this world, the whole thing, like a Garden of Eden. So I kind of want to hear a hallelujah. That, that's, that's good news. And so obviously, as we start reading about Abram's offspring, Israel, knowing their purpose, we should be asking a lot of questions. Like, first of all, can God really do this? 
And that's why there are 50 chapters in Genesis, because the rest of Genesis is saying, yes, God has made a promise and God can keep that promise. I mean, you bring up the objection, physical impossibilities, a dead womb. Yeah, God can bring life from that dead womb. Wicked people, scheming people, terrible circumstances, none of that can stop God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. He will take man's evil and use it for good. God can do this, which makes us wonder maybe next, why would God do this? Why is God doing it the way he's doing it? And if you fast forward from Genesis to Exodus, especially the first few chapters of Exodus, you see that God gives us an answer. And this is the next big part of the story. Creation, fall, gospel promise, commitment to the world, promise to Abram, proof, now Exodus, where God rescues Abram's descendants from slavery in Egypt. And you know this book, I'm, I'm sure. And there are so many things I love about this part of the story, especially the first 18 chapters. But the beginning, actually, is pretty brutal because there's a lot of terrible stuff going on, like genocide, babies dying, slavery, and it looks like Satan is winning, and yet Exodus is really clear about why it's all happening the way it's happening. I think there's like a mini theodicy in the beginning of the book of Exodus. And if you don't understand what that means, we can talk about that later. But Exodus says everything is happening, why it's happening, because God has a plan to put his character on display. If you look at Exodus 1-7, actually, because uh, this verse sets the context for the whole book, Moses writes, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And you know, one way the Bible keeps you on track with the, the story is by using words that are like hyperlinks back to other important parts of the story. And the words fruitful and multiply, you press on those words, they take you all the way back to the beginning and God's original plan. And then they take you forward to Abram and God's promise to fulfill that plan. And so we see it's still on here. God is keeping his promise. But the problem is that it's happening in Egypt and Egypt doesn't know God and Egypt hates God. And for the most part, actually, it doesn't even seem like Israel knows God at the beginning of Exodus. And God wants to be and deserves to be known for who he is. And so he acts in history to save Israel in a specific way while judging his enemies. Why? Over and over and over again, if you read the story, to make himself known to Israel and through Israel to the world. You could say the, the mission of God in Exodus is to put his glory on display through salvation and judgment. God is committed to being known as God throughout the world. He wants to be known for who he actually is. And so you'll see if you read Exodus, there's this big question that drives the, the whole story forward. And that question is, who is God? Moses asks it, Pharaoh asks it, and God orchestrates all the events in Exodus to answer that question for Israel and for the world. And so you read the story of Exodus and it's dramatic. And it's dramatic partly because of what God said in Genesis 3.15 about this war going on between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. And Israel and Egypt represents the offspring of Eve. Genesis has made that clear, God's people. And the leader of Egypt, 
Pharaoh is acting like the offspring of Satan. And so at the beginning of Exodus, he's waging absolute war on God's people as he literally attempts to kill them off. He's killing their firstborn sons. Why? For the same reason that Cain killed Abel, I think, because Satan knows God's plan is to defeat him through a descendant of Eve. And so what do you think Satan's going to inspire his followers to do? attack and try to murder the descendants of Eve before they're able to fulfill God's promise. And to a certain extent, at the beginning of Exodus, it looks like he's winning. In fact, there's a really interesting link if you go back to the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Because if you're reading the story of the Tower of Babel, the writer in Genesis 11 seems to give you this random piece of information about how they were building the tower. Because he says in Genesis 11, Three, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And you're like, that's interesting, I guess. They're using bricks and mortar to build this anti-God monument. But why is he telling me that? Well, you fast forward to Israel and Egypt in Exodus 1, and you see that it says, Pharaoh set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And watch this, because the only two places those words, brick and mortar, are used in the first five books of the Bible are here and at the Tower of Babel. So what's happening is that things have gotten so bad in the world that the offspring of Eve are now being used by the offspring of Satan to build a kingdom that stands in opposition to God and his purposes, which means it seems like Satan's anti-kingdom plan is working. But of course, we know that it's a setup by God to glorify himself as he goes on to defeat Pharaoh, proving he alone is God through judgment and to save Israel through the death of a lamb. And then he takes them through the wilderness to meet with them at Mount Sinai, where he makes them a promise. And this is Exodus 19. As we're working our way through the story of the Bible, I'm just trying to highlight some key passages. So my prayer is that you'll be able to explain the Bible to someone. And if you're going to be able to explain the Bible to someone, these are passages that you're going to need to look at. It's amazing how many people have grown up in church as you go out to talk that don't understand the story of the Bible. And so I want you to be able to explain the story of the Bible. And so first you would go to Genesis 1 and 2, and then you'd go to Genesis 3, verse 15, Genesis 6 through 9, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now Exodus 19, 4 to 6. And this one's important because we're about to get into this whole section of the Bible where the story really slows down. So after reading this like awesome story of how God saves Israel in Exodus 1 to 18, the story begins to like slow down in chapter 19. And from here on, for a couple of books actually, there's going to be a lot of law and a lot of commands. And then even there's this tabernacle and all these instructions about the tabernacle. So it's like we're asking, what happened? I mean, why is there all this law now? And to help us understand, God begins by giving an introduction. 
in chapter 19, four through six. God's chosen Israel and he's rescued Israel and now he explains Israel. And these verses are like Israel's mission statement. As someone has said, explaining Israel's purpose as the people of God and the law's purpose in that. So if you look down, Exodus 19, verse four, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that explains the next big step forward in God's kingdom plan. And you see how it starts with God reminding Israel how he rescued them. This is going to be like a, a covenant, and this is a little bit of historical prologue. So covenants actually, back in Moses' day, they had lots of these kinds of covenants between nations, and they would start with a historical prologue. And usually it would be the nation who defeated the other nation saying something like, remember how we crushed you in war? So you must do this. But God begins by reminding Israel how he accomplished their salvation instead. And he, he did that, he says, in order to bring them to himself, which is a, a beautiful little preposition. In other words, it's not simply to bring them under him, but to bring them to him. And he's bringing them to himself for a purpose, verse 5, which begins, you notice, basically with an if. And that's important because God is entering into a covenant with Israel and yet this covenant is different than the one he made earlier with Abraham. So it's connected to that covenant, but it's a different covenant now that he's making with these people. And you see, he tells them, if they do something, he'll do something. Specifically, what will happen? They shall become God's own possession among all the peoples. So here's all the world, all the nations. And they all belong to God. Every single nation belongs to God, of course. But God says, if Israel obeys, they will be my own possession. And that basically means treasure. Or you could say, they're going to have a special position among the nations. They, they shall be a holy nation. I fast forwarded there to the end. But a nation is obviously a political entity. So he's talking about a country with laws and a government and all that like the other nations. But if Israel obeys, in some ways, they will categorically be different than other nations. They will be holy. And that's a word that means devoted to God's service. It's also a word that's used in other places in Exodus for God and especially God's presence. And so if Israel obeys, they're going to become a nation that images God to the, to the nations, to, to the world. In other words, they're going to be a nation that shows the world what God is like. And now we're getting closer to what's going on. Third, God says, they shall be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom with a priestly function. And so God is telling Israel again that their purpose was bigger than just Israel, because what do priests do? Priests represent God to others. And who are the others? The whole nation of Israel is going to represent God to the world. So listen, it's like God made this promise to Abraham, through your offspring, I'm going to bless the world. And now that's being set in motion as he's taking them out of Egypt and he's creating them as a people. And he's promising if they obey him, they will become a blessing to the world 
as he establishes them as a nation and they represent him to the world. Are you, are you following? Because I mean, make sure you get the big picture. Do you remember how Adam, God put Adam in the garden to serve a priestly role? And to do that, he needed to obey God's law, but he wouldn't. And so now God is going to rescue an entire nation out of exile and plant them in the promised land where if they obeyed him, they would experience blessing to the point that the promised land would become a Garden of Eden-like place where he would have fellowship with them and use them to show the world what it's like to live with God as king. As one author explains, Israel was called to live as Adam and the entire human race was supposed to live as obedient sons and servant kings in relationship to the Lord and the entire creation. Israel was to fulfill the role of Adam by living as a kingdom of priests to serve as God's son and representative and thus display to this poor fallen world what it means to be truly human. And obviously in a, a sinful world, they needed a lot of help to do that. And so God doesn't just give them one law like he gave Adam, he gives them all kinds of laws. And we read all these laws and there's like 613 of them, so it's kind of tedious and long to us. But these laws were gifts from God to enable Israel to enjoy fellowship with him and be the blessing to the world that God promised Abraham. In fact, listen to the way Moses puts it. If you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, Moses says, See, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And part of what I'm trying to describe for you is, is the Mosaic Covenant. That's Exodus 19 through 24. Exodus 19 is like the introduction to the Mosaic Covenant. And remember, we talked about the Noahic Covenant 1, and we talked about the Abrahamic Covenant 2, and now this is the Mosaic Covenant 3. And you might notice the Mosaic Covenant is a little different than the Abrahamic and the Noahic in that while it is still gracious like the first two, it's different because, I mean, the world can't mess up the Noahic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is going to happen through the seed of Abraham. The world is going to be blessed. But the Mosaic covenant could be broken. In other words, I'm saying we see God has a plan to bless the world through Israel. This is what the Old Testament is telling us. They're going to be the means of his blessing to the world. That is going to happen. And yet in picture number three, we see God entering into a specific kind of agreement with them about how they, as a nation, could bring that blessing to the world. And that's through them being a model of his kingdom on earth by obeying certain requirements. So picture Israel being offered by God an opportunity to be his special servant. It's kind of like God is offering Israel a chance to almost experience life in the garden again. Only now in a sin-cursed world, it's not as quite as simple as it was to have God living with you in the Garden of Eden because everything was perfect there and they didn't need a lot of rules or laws because everything was the way it should be. 
But after the fall, it clearly wasn't, which is why there is a Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And actually, a lot of the laws in Leviticus that you think are weird can be explained by that. How do you live with a holy God and not die? But this is the goal, the, the goal. God establishing the kingdom of Israel and planning to dwell with them in the promised land, where if they obey laws, he will live with them and they will re represent him to the nations. And yet, you know, as you move on in Exodus, there's a problem. It's Israel's sin. And if you move on from Exodus through Leviticus to Numbers, you even find that the very first generation of Israelites, the very ones that he rescued from slavery to bring into the promised land, didn't trust God enough to go back into the garden. If you know what I'm saying. In Genesis, God chooses Israel. In Exodus, God rescues Israel. In Leviticus, God makes a way to live with Israel. And in Numbers, Israel says, no thanks. If you think of Israel like a, a second Adam, you picture them like that. The first Adam, the first Adam got kicked out of the garden. And with Israel, God's choosing a second Adam, only it's a whole nation this time. And in the first five books of the Bible, God's bringing them back to the edge of the garden, only now it's this land called Canaan. And he's saying, if you obey me, I'm gonna make Canaan like the garden again. In fact, you know, I keep saying that, but let me show you. Listen to the way God puts it in Leviticus 26, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I'll give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall lead, yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for the sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply." you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Which I don't know, sounds an awful lot like what? It sounds an awful lot like God cleaning up a place so it could function like the Garden of Eden did. The land is working the way it should. It's raining when it should. Trees are yielding what they should. The harvest is doing what it should. People are feeling what they should. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. That's satisfaction. There's peace, security, blessing. I will make you fruitful and multiply, which has to be an allusion back to the garden. And the most important one is the part where he says, I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you, which is such a huge promise that God is making Israel. And yet, you know what happened in Numbers? When God brought them out of Egypt to the edge of the promised land, those people weren't even willing to enter. You remember? They were like, thanks, but no thanks. We'll stay out here. We prefer exile in the wilderness to the garden. And so obviously, we're looking at Israel, and we've already got questions. I mean, if this is how it's going to happen, it's not looking good, even from the beginning. 
After making a covenant with them at Sinai, they said they wanted to be part of it, you remember. And yet when Moses went up to get further instructions, they broke the covenant almost right away. They made an idol. And that's like adultery on your wedding night. Your husband goes out to get ice and you're committing adultery. And yet God showed them grace and renewed the covenant with them and then spent a whole year giving them laws and instructions so they were ready to be this kind of nation he wanted them to be. And then you know what happens in Numbers 11? It's crazy. Let me show you this because it helps if you get it, if you get the big picture. In Exodus 1 through 15, you see the creation of Israel. And in Exodus 16 through 18, after they've been rescued, it's Israel in the wilderness. And you remember what they're doing there in the wilderness, the first generation? If you, if you remember, they're grumbling about not having water, not having meat, the food God's providing. They're wishing they could go back to Egypt. But then in Exodus 19:31, God still makes this covenant with Israel. The people say they'll do it. But in Exodus 32, basically right away, the people break it. And yet God graciously gives them another chance and he takes a year in Exodus 33 through Numbers 10 to give them instructions and training so they can do what he's asked. And then in, in Numbers 11, they set out on the road again to start the journey into the promised land. And you know what they do right away? Here's what they do. The exact same things they did in Exodus 16 through 18. Like literally, they grumble about food and water and the manna God's provided wish that God hadn't rescued them from Egypt until finally God brings them to the brink of the promised land and they wouldn't believe he had the ability to enable them to enter. And yet still, guys, God is so gracious because in spite of their lack of faith, by the end of Deuteronomy, he's raised up a new generation. And you know, Moses renews the covenant with them in the final chapters. After having gone through the whole covenant with them, they say yes. And so once again, at the end of Deuteronomy, we're hopeful. Okay. It's like we're standing back before the garden. And maybe these people will be able to do what God's calling them to do. And yet if we press fast forward to the end of the story in the book of Kings, you know where Israel is? Like Adam, they've been kicked out of the garden. And so you're kind of scratching your head as you're looking at these first few pictures. Kingdom of God, that's good, I want it. But it's broken, no. There's this promise, yes, Satan defeated through an offspring of Eve, a kingdom being established on earth through Abraham's offspring that's supposed to be distinct. Awesome. But they're not distinct. And so you're asking, what is it going to take to fix this? And that is not like a theoretical question. This matters. How is God going to fix the problems in the universe? I mean, if God does all this, if he shows all this mercy and grace and patience over and over and over again, and yet in spite of all this revelation and God's incredible patience and his constant deliverance, these people eventually become like everyone else and are kicked out of the promised land and sent into exile, you should be asking if this whole nation, this whole privileged nation can't do it, how is God gonna rescue us? What does God need to do if he's going to establish his kingdom? And you know, there are a lot of questions you might have reading the Old Testament. It's big. 
and it can feel confusing. But I'm telling you, if you're asking those kinds of questions, I think you're beginning to get it. Because if you read the Old Testament properly, it is answering questions much bigger than how you can live a nice life or something. It is giving you a glimpse of God and his great salvation plan. And one thing it does over and over and over and over again is show you how much you need it. Because if you're looking at Adam and Noah and Israel and you're thinking, these guys, what's their problem? You're completely missing the point. They're like the best of us with all the privileges and yet they can't accomplish their salvation and neither can you. If there is one thing you should understand reading the Old Testament, is it's that you need a savior. And that savior is not you. And we need a whole, a lot of pages to, to teach us that. Because even though the, it's like, it's like with the sun, you know? It's, it's crazy how broken we are. We, the sun is obviously bright, and yet it's like we can't figure out the difference between the sun and darkness. That's the way we are with this. It's so clear we need a savior. But we, we think we can be our own savior. And, and so God has to spend all this time to prove to us that we need a savior. That savior's not us. And we need a savior who's not just coming to deal with our external problems. We need God to send someone to deal with the fundamental problem underneath all of our other problems. And I'm talking, of course, about the sin problem. And can I give you some good news? He did, he did. And that's why we're excited about Jesus. Because he's the one who did what Adam couldn't do. And because he's the one who did what this whole nation couldn't do. And he did that just the way that God said all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that he would do. He crushed the head of the serpent as the serpent bit his heel. He achieved our victory through suffering. And we'll see in weeks to come how he dealt with our fundamental problem through his death on the cross. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you. Thank you that we can understand it. You've given us the Holy Spirit. Thank you that it reveals something so much bigger than just, okay, this is how you get a good job and this is how you live a nice life. It reveals your plan for the universe. And Lord, help us not just to hear this and be like, oh, that's an interesting story, but to shape our lives according to this reality, to go away from here and to think, okay, if this is what reality is, how do I live in a way that makes sense in light of that? How do I live a life that matches up with what's real rather than this illusion that the world is selling us. Lord, we just love you. And Jesus, we just want to glorify you. You are a great savior. And you're not just other people's savior. You are our savior. And we pray this in your name. Come again, Lord. Make everything right. Amen. <laughs>